Well, friends, if you have your Bible, please turn with me in them to 1 Timothy chapter 1. This morning we're reading verses 8 to 11 uh, in a sermon entitled, Why the Law is Good. And I think it's an important topic to talk about as Christians, especially because I think there's a lot of um, confusion about the role of the law in the Christian life. And here's what's at stake. Uh, a misunderstanding of the law doesn't just lead to um, wrong knowledge. It actually leads to wrong living. Um, and the, on the other side of that, a correct understanding of the law leads to more than simply right knowledge, but at least to right living. And so I hope we can clarify uh, what that looks like and what that means in the Christian life. And so we're in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 11. So if you are able, I invite you to stand with me. Standing is an act of worship. It shows uh, physically and outwardly the inward posture of a heart, which is to read and receive God's word with reverence. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, reading verses 8 to 11, hear now the word of the Lord. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. And I invite you to pray with me once more. A good and gracious Father, we do ask for your blessing upon the hour at this time, that we would read and receive your word with an ear to listen, um, not merely for the transfer of information, um, but that your spirit would work in us a transformation. Lead us uh, to know you better so that we might live rightly before your face. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I once saw a Christian article with a very compelling, interesting title. And the article was called, Want a Miserable Life? Confuse Law and Gospel. And the author of that article, Jeff Robinson, writes this. He writes, the law of God as a ground of salvation, for salvation, as a means of accruing merit, leaves the worker exhausted, miserable, and lost. The law wrongly applied is a terrible taskmaster. Now, for those of you who grew up in a legalistic church environment, you may know the crushing weight of what it is to be expected to live according to all the commands and demands and the fear that it strikes in our hearts and the guilt it produces. Some of you may know how much spiritual vibrancy is choked out of our lives when we try to fulfill the law of God, and yet over and over and over again, we're confronted with our failure and inability to do so. That's some of you, and if that is you, I pray and hope that you also now know the liberation, the freedom there is in the gospel, and you're living not under what God calls you to do as a way of earning salvation, but now you live in light of the received salvation that Christ has accomplished for you. I hope you know that there's a joy and freedom in the Christian life when you're building your confidence, your righteousness, not on your performance and your works, but you're building it upon Jesus. Now, I think that captures maybe the experience of many in this room. And when you have felt 
the oppression of legalism in your life and the freedom of the gospel, it's easy to conclude something like this. The gospel is good and the law is bad. I think a lot of us kind of live under that assumption. You see, when you share the gospel, maybe one of your first instincts in explaining Christianity to another person is to clarify with them really quickly, oh, Christianity, oh, that's not about following rules and laws. It's about a relationship and love. And if you've ever explained it this way, you've probably done so for a good reason, because you know a lot of people live under the misunderstanding that the way you get to heaven is by being a good person. Maybe some of you in this room believe that now. And under this system, a lot of people think, well, religions all kind of teach the same thing. I mean, in uh, diverse, varying ways, but it's pretty much the same thing. If you do good enough, you'll be accepted. And we know the Christian gospel is the good news that runs contrary to this. And so often we try then to evangelize by correcting this notion. And we say, no, 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 Christianity is about the gospel. The gospel is bad and the law, that thing you believe, oh no, that's bad. But sometimes this poses a, a problem later down the road because somebody becomes a Christian and they start living their lives and they start taking advantage of God's grace, right? Maybe even living in sin because in their minds, they reason, well, you just told me that God is the God of forgiveness, of second chances, of infinite chances. And so I can live my life however I want. Can I? As long as I say I'm sorry at the end and trust in Jesus. And so then we swing the pendulum the other way and we try to correct that in our discipleship. And it's really confusing because on the one hand, when you're evangelizing, you say, it's not about obeying the law. And then they start living sinfully. And then in discipleship, you're like, what's well, a little bit about obeying the law? It's a little bit about having to obey and do what God says. I think a lot of us are confused about the role and the place of God's law in the Christian faith. Is the law good or is the law bad? Should we focus on the law or should we forget about the law? In our passage today, Apostle Paul speaks about the law and he does it because he's confronting false teachers in the church. These teachers are creating chaos and confusion and controversy. And so Paul, as an ambassador of Christ, the great apostle writes to Timothy and says, we need to correct and clarify what the law is. Now, in verse 7, which we didn't read this week, but we read last week, Paul had written this, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And Paul's saying these guys are problems, these false teachers, because their place in the church is to bless and build up. But they're doing so much harm because they're teaching the law of God incorrectly. And so Paul says, Timothy, we need to correct this and clarify it. So that's where we begin in verse eight, where Paul writes these words. He says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Now, this isn't the first time Paul has said this. It's surprising to us. Paul has said a few times before that the law is good. We read in Romans chapter seven, these words in verse 12, he wrote, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And then a few verses later, in verse 16, Paul again writes, Now, if I, do not, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So Paul has said time and again, the law is good. Now, the word good can be translated as uh, right or attractive or beautiful. And it's a strange way of putting it, because I think for those of you who are familiar with the law, if you've tried to live according to it, 
those probably aren't the first words you would use to describe the law. The law to many of us feels oppressive, burdensome, impossible, frustrating, condemning. So Paul surprises us because he uses a word to describe the law that we wouldn't normally. But he clarifies what he means by that. He says, we know the law is good if, and then he says, if one uses it lawfully. Now the word lawfully is the ESV translation. The NIV translates that word as properly. Uh, The CSB, which is the Christian Standard Bible, translates it as legitimately. And so he says, you need to know the design, the role, the place of God's law if you're going to understand that it's good. Meaning if you think it's bad, if you are opposed to the law of God, it's probably because you're using it unlawfully, improperly, and illegitimately. And all this leads to our first implication, which is this church. The law is not good when used against God's design. God has a design for the law, but when we go against it and we use the law improperly, unlawfully, and illegitimately, it's not good. And then we'll discover the law is quite insufficient. Now, how do we use the law of God um, improperly or illegitimately? I think we do so in one of two ways. Maybe you're guilty of this. The first way is that we try to use the law as a way to justify ourselves before God to gain a standing, approval, acceptance before God. That's one way we misuse it. The second way we misuse the law is through our obedience to it. We try to gain superior, superiority over others. Essentially put, um, the law, we either try to make us look good before God or we use the law to make us uh, look down at others. And the spiritual reality is Uh, None of us in this room, because of our sin, can obey the law. None of you can so properly and perfectly obey that before God, you are uh, completely viewed as perfect and righteous and blameless. Maybe you've tried. Maybe you've lived your Christian life in such a way where you try to obey every single thing in it. And yeah, you may have failed once or twice, but for the majority, you've kept it. Well, you need to know God doesn't work by approximation. He works by exact perfection. So we fail the law of God, and yet we try to use it to gain standing before God and try to lord ourselves over others. And it reminds me of this story. It's a very familiar story in Luke 18. Do you know the story? Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable about two men. One's a Pharisee, one's a tax collector. Does it ring a bell? And one is a Pharisee, and he's using the law of God in all the wrong ways. And so Jesus, in telling us this parable, says in Luke 18, verse 11, the man prayed like this. The Pharisee prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, other unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And what do we see this Pharisee doing? This Pharisee is trying to use the law and his obedience to it as a way to prop himself up before God as a way to distinguish himself before God and then to stand over others in judgment. He's boasting before God, aren't I so good? Look at all that I've done. And then he's bragging and aren't I better than others? And so the Pharisees, an example of someone who uses the law improperly. But then Jesus shows us another man, the tax collector, and he's using the law properly according to God's design because this is what Jesus says in verse 13. But the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You see, the tax collector let the law of God do what it's supposed to do. What is that? Show him his sin 
and drive them to his Savior. That's the way God intends the law to work. That through the law, we come and we look to God for mercy instead of proving to God our merit. It makes me wonder, friends, how have you been using the law of God in your life? How have you been relating to the law? Do you try to keep it and be obedient and do your best so that you can gain acceptance and approval? Using it as a measure to see how much God should bless you and love you. Or maybe you use your spirituality, your faithfulness in coming to church, how many times you read the Bible, to look at others and feel spiritually superior over them. I'm more religious than they are. They're heathen compared to me. And the implication of what Paul is saying here is that you're completely misusing the law of God. And it ends up, if you do that, it's destructive and it's harmful. I mean, for example, like, let's say you have a special occasion, a celebration, and you want to clean yourself up. You want to do some personal grooming um, and you need to shave, right? If you need to shave, like, what do you go ahead and buy? Do you buy a razor or do you go out and buy a lawnmower? And it's like, well, they both have blades. Uh, they both cut really well. I mean, do you use a razor or a lawnmower? And, you know, just a, it's an easy question to answer. Use a razor, not a lawnmower. Why? Because a lawnmower is designed to cut grass in your lawn, a razor to shave the hair on your body. Now, some of you are looking at the people around you like, oh, they could use a lawnmower because they're as hairy as Esau. But, you know, no matter how much hair you have grown out of your body, even if that's as thick as lawn, you use a razor, not a lawnmower. Why? Because things are only good when used according to their design. And they're harmful when that's violated. In the same way, the law is good and beautiful and right when it does what? When it shows you your sin and leads you to the Savior. But when you use the law to try to gain standing before God, when you use the law to become self-righteous in your judgment over others, and you view them as less significant than yourself, then you're using the law in all the wrong ways. Which is why when Jesus finishes that parable in Luke 18, listen to how he ends it in verse 14. He says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, he went down to his house justified rather than the other. The man who looked at the law and it drove him to his knees and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He went home justified. He went home declared righteous. Why? Because the law drove him to Jesus. You see, friends, but the other one wasn't justified. Why? Because when the law drives you deeper into yourself to look at your own performance and your own works and your own record, you're nothing but more condemned. So I want to encourage you, how are you relating to the law of God? We need to stop using it as a way to gain favor before the Lord. We need to stop using it as a way to prop ourselves up over others. But let the law do its painful work. The work of exposing our failures and our faults so that we come running to the cross of Christ and collapsing into his arms. That's when the law is good. When the law leads you to Jesus. Well, Paul continues in verse 9, and he writes this, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. And Paul says something interesting here, because he says the law is good, because it's not laid down for the just. Now, who are the just? 
Uh, the just are Christians. The just are those who have been justified by Jesus. And Paul says the law is not good for them because what he's saying is the law has already done the job. The law has already led them to Christ. And so they're justified. So the law doesn't help them. The law helps this other group, the lawbreakers, the lawless, the disobedient, because the law is like a mirror to them. The law shows them their true condition. It's not a problem with the law. It's a problem with them. Imagine that you uh, went back to Target and you're trying to return a mirror that you bought. And the person says, well, is there any problem with it? And you say, well, it's a defective mirror. And they're like, well, what's defective at it? And, and you say to them, well, every time I look in the mirror, an uglier version of myself is looking back at me. I mean, what would that person say? The, the, the problem, friend, isn't with the mirror. It's maybe with you. The defect isn't in the mirror. The defect is in us. The law shows us that the defect isn't with the law. The defect is with us. It's showing us our sin. And how does the law work? How is it good for the unbeliever? Because it shows them what's evil and what's good. And like a mirror, it shows them their inside, their heart. And it shows us that we're evil. And the clearest expression of the law is the Ten Commandments. And so Paul goes on to make this wonderful connection with the Ten Commandments. Now, we just read this passage and you may say, well, I didn't see the Ten Commandments anywhere. Well, Paul does it pretty artistically. And he does it by not showing us the commands, but the ways in which we violate the commands. And so I'll do my best to show you this. Scholars have paid attention to this list um, and they show something very interesting, which is this. Uh, Paul begins in verse nine by listing the lawless and the disobedient. And this is a general category for lawbreakers, right? The lawless, those who don't live as if God's law exists, the disobedient, those who don't obey God's law. And then he goes into the 10 commandments. So Paul mentions the ungodly. Who are the ungodly? They break the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. They're ungodly because they're not worshiping the one true God. So they're ungodly. Then he says, um, the sinners. The sinners break the second commandment, which is about idolatry and not making images. And he's saying when they are pursuing after these other idols, they are sinning. Then he mentions the unholy. The unholy break the third commandment. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You're supposed to treat God's name as holy. You're supposed to hallow his name, but they're not. So they're unholy. The profane, they break commandment four. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Why are they profane? Because the Lord's day should be treated separately and specially, but they're taking what's sacred and treating it like it's common. They're profaning it. Then Paul goes on. And then he lists now the second half, the second tablet of the commands. Verses, commandments five to 10. We read in verses nine and 10, these words for those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now here you might be able to see the 10 commandments a little more clearly. I don't know if you can notice. So just kind of look at it. Those who strike their fathers and mothers, what are they breaking? The fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. You're not honoring them if you're harming them. Then he mentions the murderers. Breaking the commandment, ye shall not murder. This one doesn't need too much explanation. Then what do we get next? The sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality. They're breaking the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Now you're going, well, I don't understand the connection there. Well, you shall not commit adultery means you should treat sexual behavior in its God-given design. So those who are sexually immoral, those who are men practicing homosexuality, are breaking, they're violating God's good design for sexual uh, practices within marriage. Then you get enslavers. Enslavers are breaking the eighth commandment. You shall not steal. Why? 
Because slavery is a horrendous evil where you are stealing people and treating them as objects, not as image bearers. Paul then mentions liars and perjurers. They break the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. What are liars and perjurers doing? They're using words to deceive and twist the truth. And then lastly, Paul ends this list with whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And that's violating the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. Now this word gets a little tricky. You shall not covet is not an action. It's something done in the heart. It's something done in the mind. And so Paul says, well, I don't know what those are. Those are anything. So he says, whatever else, whatever sin you're committing, that is a violation of this commandment. Now, what is the whole point of this? Paul's basically saying the law of God summarized in the 10 commandments. It's good. Why? Because it's showing all of us that we've actually failed. Now, that's really hard to accept. You know, some of you are saying, like, I had a tough week, Pastor. I came here to be inspired and uplifted, and you're just sitting here telling me that I'm a sinner and lawless and disobedient. And it's hard for us to accept that the law is good because we live in a time, a society and a culture where if you challenge somebody, if you oppose their thoughts or you challenge their actions, you take a stand against them, they'll interpret it to be a hate crime or hate speech. You do something, you're disagreeing with me. Oh, that's hatred. But Paul's saying, no, it's loving. It's good. Because when the law shows you your sin, it shows you your savior. Which leads to our second implication. We must evangelize with the law and the gospel. Now, what do I mean by that? Earlier, we mentioned that we often try to evangelize with the gospel. God loves you and you're accepted. And then we disciple with the law. Oh, but you also have to obey as you grow as a Christian. Well, you can't separate the two. Because if you want to present Christ as the merciful, compassionate Savior he is, you need to show them also what he is saving you from. When you share the gospel, when you present the Christian faith to others, you can't do it without reference to the law of God. Because what would attract them to the Savior unless they're first disgusted by some sin? Remember, like we said, the law is a mirror. It shows you your true spiritual condition, but that's all it does. Let's say you're doing some yard work. It's in the middle of the summer. This week, it's going to be a little hot. And so you're out there because last week was cold. You couldn't do your yard work. You're doing some yard work now. You're working with mulch. You're shoveling, you're planting, you're repotting. All the while, you're sweating profusely. And there's dirt all over your hands and gloves. And you're getting it on your face. And then it's mixed in with the sweat. And now it's smeared, but it's hot. And then it dries and it cakes. And you go afterwards inside to cool down. You go to the bathroom, wash your hands. You look in the mirror and you realize you have dirt all over your face. The mirror shows you you're a mess. It shows you you need to be cleaned. But the mirror can't cleanse you. How do you clean yourself up? Do you reach up over the sink, grab the mirror, take it off the wall, and try to wipe yourself clean with it? Of course not, because all the mirror does is show you your faults. The mirror itself can never cleanse or cover. It's the same thing with the law. All the law does is reflect to you your spiritual dirt and your spiritual blemishes. It's reminding you, you think you're clean and put together, but you're really not. So what do you do? Just like you can't use the mirror to clean yourself up, you can't use the law and your obedience to it by making yourself more presentable. You need to look to something else. You see, what the mirror exposes, only a shower can wash away. In the same way with the law exposes, only the Savior can wash away. Only the gospel can cleanse and cover you. And so you need to look outside of the law. 
because to try and work harder at the law will only just kick up more dirt and make you messier than you began with. You see, friends, we need law and the gospel. Why? Because the law can't cleanse you, can only confront you. The law can't clean you, it can only condemn you. But it's necessary for the law to do this work because when the law has done what God purposed, when it gives you a taste of sin's bitterness, the gospel gives you an overwhelming sense of the sweetness of Christ. The law and the gospel aren't at odds with one another in the Christian life. They work together in tandem. They accomplish two different purposes, but they are together. And we need the bad news in order to understand the good news because a vaccination isn't good news unless you know about the disease. A payment isn't good news unless you know about the debt. A rescue isn't good news until you know about the danger. So too, the gospel isn't good news until you know the law. Both are necessary. If you tell people Jesus Christ is the Savior, you must also tell them what he saved you from. He saved us from the law. He saved us from its expectations and demands. He saved us from its condemnation and guilt. And so when you share the gospel, friends, you must share both law and gospel. It's not loving to not talk about sin and only talk about the Savior. But we do both. Because when we show both, that's then how we understand that the gospel is glorious. That's what Paul says at the end of verse 11. He says, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The goodness of the heavy law is offset then by the glory of the good news of the gospel. And what the gospel does is the gospel keeps the law in its proper place. You see, without the gospel, all we have is the law. So then the law ends up being the way we try to earn salvation with God. But when we have the gospel, it keeps the law in check. And so Paul says, I've been entrusted with this gospel to make sure things are in its proper place. Because here's what's beautiful about all of this. You have the law, you're condemned in sin. It's a mirror that shows you that you are a dirty mess. And then it points you to Christ and you come in Christ. You are clean, you are exposed, but covered with a robe of righteousness. Then what does the gospel do? Then the gospel turns you around so that you look at the law and now you see the law is beautiful. Now the law becomes the way you obey God, which leads to our third and final implication. We must disciple with the gospel and the law. See, it's the other way around. Now I know this can get a little confusing, but the law is a mirror. It shows you your sin, then it leads you to the gospel. But when you believe the gospel, you don't do away with the law. When you believe the gospel, now it becomes a map that shows you how you can live a life that pleases God. Because Here's what the gospel says to you. The gospel says, you are not saved by your law keeping. You are saved by your law keeper. Christ Jesus came into the world. He kept the law perfectly and yet died as if he failed miserably. Why? So that us who failed miserably could be treated as if we kept it perfectly. That's the glorious gospel. And when you rest in it, the law is no longer the means to earn salvation. The gospel changes your relationship to the law. You see, before the gospel, the law was your guardian. It, it was your instructor. It served to teach you about sin and point you to Christ. So Paul writes in Galatians, he says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. 
So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. Before the gospel, all the law did was show you your sin and show you your need for a savior. It was a guardian. But after the gospel, the law now becomes your guide. The law lights the path for how to live a life that pleases God. And so the psalmist in Psalm 119 says, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. The law becomes the guide by which we can live a life that's pleasing to God. And when you grow as a Christian, you understand both. Going back to that article, do you want to live a miserable life? Confused long gospel. But you want to live a joyful life? Understand that the law leads you to the gospel. And then the gospel leads you back to the law. And maybe some of you in this room, the law is just a burden to you. It's an annoyance. It's oppressive. It's joy stealing. You feel crushed under its expectations, overwhelmed by all your failure. Dear friends, that's good. Let the law show you your sin and lead you to your Savior. Because it's under the shelter of Christ then that the burden of the law is transformed to be the beauty of the law. Because it creates in you a desire now to live a life that pleases God. Let me end with this. Paul felt it was so necessary to clarify this and correct it because it threatened the family of faith. He, he understood that confusing the law and the gospel ultimately hurt the household of God. And so what does he do? He writes to clarify the law and the gospel because this kind of clarity, it actually unifies the church. It brings the spiritual family together in two ways. How, how, how does this happen? Well, first is this, friends. We become humble before God and others. You know, when you understand the proper place of the law, you don't use the law and your spiritual performance as a way of creating hierarchy in the church. I think it's easily sometimes when uh, it's pretty easy for you to become spiritually arrogant and look down at others who aren't as spiritual as you, who aren't as religious as you, who don't have their lives as cleaned up and put together, who are still struggling with the same sins that, oh, I conquered that a long time ago. So you feel spiritually arrogant. And others of you spir feel spiritually inferior. I can never live up to that. I guess I'm just stuck in my sin. Well, they walk with God and I walk behind God. But understanding the law and the gospel creates humility because it shows us that we're all just sinners and beggars in line at the soup kitchen waiting to receive what God freely gives. Man, what would it look like if there was true humility in the spiritual family of faith? No arrogance, no inferiority. The second thing this does is that it helps us celebrate the grace of God together. When the law leads us to Christ, we're all gathered at the foot of the cross to receive. There is no one further ahead and somebody else further back. We're all at the foot of the cross with open hands, receiving freely the abundant grace of God. And that unites us together. Not, not superficial realities. The things that we have in common, the same interests, whether we're in the same life stage or not. Oh, you work in the industry? Me too. Those are superficial realities that we cannot be united around. You know why? Because when those things happen, 
those same superficial realities will be the reasons we divide. But instead, we're united around the gospel of grace as we celebrate what God has given freely to us. One of the greatest expressions of unity in God's household is found when believers come to the Lord's Supper. One table, one meal received as one family of faith. And that's what we will soon come and partake of. It's my prayer, friends, that you would discover that the law is good. It's good when it shows you your sin because it gently takes you by your hand and leads you to your Savior. And from Christ, then, we see that the law is good because it's the way that we live our lives to please him in response of grace and gratitude. Would you pray with me?